Welcome to A Shame of Thrones, your weekly recap podcast for HBO's Galaxy Note 7 of TV shows, The Game of Thrones. My name is Doug, with me as always is Brian. Good evening, Doug. Good evening, Brian. And uh, I've already told you this, but I'll tell the listeners, I am a little under the weather. So we'll see how this goes. Boo freaking who? Yeah. Uh, send your sympathies my way. I'd appreciate it. Anyway, uh, this is a uh, this is momentous. We have a new season, season two, episode one. How do you mm-hmm. feel? Good, uh, pretty good episode. I, I enjoyed it for the most part. Um, some interesting things happened. A little bit of action, and uh, it starts to set up. Usually, the first episode of the season are kind of slow. They start to set things up. So this is kind of in that category, I think. Yeah, I, I, I'd agree with that for the most part, but I, I think it was still a little bit south of um, um, average for me. Uh, a lot of table setting, but uh, not really a lot of action with people I care about. Um, yeah. We started to delve more into the, the Lannister side of things. Um, and at this point, they're really not that likable or you really don't care about them, um, except for Tyrion. Uh, yes. There's, there's other reasons, but uh, we'll get into it as a whole. Uh, I'm gonna say, yeah, mediocre start to the season. All I right. agree. I agree with that assessment. So uh, let's start it off here. All right. So we open to the hound smashing someone uh, in a tournament on King Joffrey's name day. Um, apparently, the blow was well struck, as discussed multiple times. Whatever that means. That, that, that uh, exchange made me laugh. Uh, Joff is angry at Arya's uh, low key sass. Uh, Sir Dantos shows up and he's apparently hammered. And in the book, I think he showed up without his pants on, uh, but he was even more hammered. I mean, that's a little bit too uh, risque for HBO. Who knows? Yeah, I don't know. Well, they want to fit in with the collection of weird dongs they've put on this this series <laughs> as it's gone. Um, <laughs> hey, so just trying as, to balance out all the female nudity. <laughs> sure. So uh, Joffrey is upset that Sir Dantos is drunk. He orders his guards to pour wine down Dantos's throat. Sansa convinces him not to do it. You don't want to kill someone on your, on your name day. And the hound uh, backs up her, her statement that you don't want to kill someone on your name day. <laughs> and it, that, I was curious, why is Sansa sticking up for this idiot? Because she's not for, a horrible person. Yeah, I guess. Uh, so she convinces Joff to make uh, Dantos the court, the fool, his fool. Yep. All right. Then let's do it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I will say it's a pretty lame tournament. Um it's a private affair. There can't be more than, I don't know, 25, 50 people in attendance. Um, yeah, uh, I don't and know. All things considered, and it, it, this is, it's, it's really, it's messed up that he's doing this instead of out leading. They're in the middle of this war that he's losing and he's wasting time and resources uh, on, on, you know, a, a event to, to just glorify him, um, which it's kind of, it's in contrast to the way, Tyrion shows up and actually we'll get right into that. So Tyrion arrives. He mocks Joff for not being on the battlefield. Um, Tyrion shows some sympathy for uh, Sansa, which Joffrey does not care for. Tyrion struts out and says there is work to be done. Yeah, and uh, Sansa's response is, you know, she's she's a battered woman at this point, literally. Um, yeah. She's just towing the company line saying, my father was a traitor. Uh, yeah. No need for sympathies, Lord Tyrion. Um, you know, and Tyrion obviously sees her as what she is—an abused little girl. Um, uh, not much to say about this scene either. Besides, you know, Tyrion's back and he's 
he's being ultra sassy. Um, yes. And this is this is gonna be the most uh, at least in the books too. Uh, book two wasn't that great, but uh, Tyrion being the hand of the king uh, was my favorite part of it by far. So uh, his sassy pants is gonna be in full effect in King's Landing. Um, so that's exciting. Yes, absolutely. Mm-hmm. All right. So uh, later, uh, we're in the small council uh, meeting, and Pycelle brings in a white raven, um, which arrival heralds the end of summer. Now, this is where uh, it's been a while since I read the books, and I need to. But didn't we have the white ravens arriving at the end of season six, heralding did, the yes. beginning of winter? Yeah, I'm not sure if those are two separate things or what that is, because I think it was when Sam arrived at the Citadel is when we saw the Ravens the Ravens go out. So I don't know if there's yeah. a period between winter and summer um, or if they're two separate things or if the timing is just messed up on this. I'm not sure. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know if this is just a show invention um, or what, but uh, it's very strange. So at least with the show logic, we're going to assume that the White Ravens, uh, arrive twice, once to end summer and once to mark the beginning of winter, I guess. I think, yeah, that, I think that's the only thing that makes sense. Okay, we're going to go with that. Anyway, yeah. um, during this small council meeting, Tyrion uh, rolls up uh, like a pimp um, <laughs> and basically informs everyone that he's the acting hand of the king by orders of his father, Ty- uh, Tywin. Um he rubs it in uh, Cersei's face. What a shitty job she's done um, ruling the kingdom and keeping Joffrey in line. Uh, and then it also comes out that they do not have Arya as well as Sansa, just Sansa, and that Arya escaped apprehension. Um, and obviously Tyrion sees, uh, sees this as a horrible, you know, uh, misstep for their family as far as another bar- bargaining chip to possibly end this war. Um, yes. And that's mm-hmm. exactly what it is. So not much else to talk about. It's just setting setting, setting the scene here. Tyrion's in town. He's going to start ruling, and there's going to be conflict between him and his sister. Yeah, that, beyond the, the Ned Stark thing and the Arya Stark, also, he's, there's other little smaller things that Cersei's been doing that are bad moves, for instance, or allowing Joffrey to do, for instance, dismissing Selmy, uh from the uh, the gold cloaks, you yeah. know, and, and letting Slit take over, who's a piece of crap. I mean, there, there's other, there's a lot going on beyond just the, the Stark stuff, and I don't think Cersei realized it. it was a great line towards the end of the scene where, where Tyrion says something about now you get to feel what it's like to be the disappointing child, <laughs> yeah, which is great, yeah. So, um, one of those great little digs that Tyrion has. Yeah, yeah, Tyrion, he's terrific. So um, then we go back to Winterfell, and. Um, and uh, Bran is uh, hearing the common people come in and complain, which, God, that just seems like the worst job ever. Yeah, and he seems uh, bored as shit, uh, yeah. appropriately so. Yeah, what is he, six, seven, eight years old, and yep. he's sitting there? <laughs> Terrible. Uh, so someone's complaining about their shitty house. Uh, apparently they think it's Canada. They want a free house. Um, so. <laughs> whoa, whoa, let's not get political. We've got listeners <laughs> in Canada. So, um, so Bran... Uh, Actually, Grandmaster Pizel suggests that they send somebody to help the guy. Yeah, not much to the scene. I think it's just shown. I, I guess to show what Brand's up to. Um, I don't know. I don't, I'm not really sure what the point of it was. Yeah, I, I don't, I'm not sure what the point was um, at this episode. Just besides the table set. Once again, this is the beginning of season two. We're yeah. watching this straight through as part of like a cohesive story. But it's just like, hey, Brand's here. Remember Brand? Yeah. Um, 
So yeah, he's now the the man of the house since this is a you know patriarchal uh, society and um, both his well his dad's dead, his oldest brother Rob is the king, but off fighting, so it falls to him. Even though Maester Lewin's doing most of the ruling, I guess for appearances, Bran has to be there since he's the Lord of Winterfell for mm-hmm. the time being. Uh, but you're right, nothing, not much happens here besides. Um, there's a little bit of discontent um, with these vassal lords um, because Bran starts rubbing into this, like getting all uh, up in this guy's grill. And he's just like, you mean King Rob? Uh, yeah. Do you not remember your vows? And he's like, what? Yeah, I remember my vows. Um, so Lewin acknowledges that he didn't like how he was talking about Rob either. So I guess this is some kind of foreshadowing for the betrayal that is the Red Wedding, but it doesn't really, it's not a one-to-one comparison because this is just a random lord. We don't even know his name. He doesn't come back in any way. Um, so yeah, I'm just, yeah. I'm shaking my head as to why we're here. But the scene moves on and um, later we're in Bran's dream and Bran is dreaming that he is a wolf. He sees himself in the reflection and he's a wolf. This is new, right? All the other dreams before this have been of the Three-Eyed Raven. I think so, but it, it, we talked about it a little bit the book. This is this is like chapters upon chapters of this kind of thing. Right. Um, so it's kind of they they do a little bit on the show, but not nearly as uh, as important as it is in the book. Yeah, and um, you know him going into the wolf. This is this makes me think that these wolves are going to be very important later on. <laughs> <in this. laughs> yeah, exactly. So then we see uh, Hodor, Osha, and Bran walking around in a godswood. It's uh, apparently the same little pond that uh Bran was at earlier. It's a real motley crew. I still don't understand why these why Osha the slave is or captive is, is able to like, almost be a nanny for Bran. Uh we see the uh red comet discuss the characters discuss what this could be as an omen. Either dragons have returned, it's stark red, or it's uh Rob signaling a victory by Rob. Um again again, not a whole lot to the scene and I'm not sure what kind of what the point of it was. Yeah, I mean, um, this was a con- yeah. their their conversation was uh, a condensed version of what happens in the books. Uh, there we see firsthand what each group uh, thinks about the comet, and mm-hmm. you know, we we actually hear it from um, you know different factions firsthand. And Asha or Professor McGonagall or whatever her name is from the Harry Potter movies, um, she says that it's it's dragons, boy. And she also mentions the land, you know, she mentions everybody's interpretation. And the comet's a little bit played up in the book. Now, this is a crazy theory, and this put on the, uh, cue the crazy theory music. So, there is another book by George R. R. Martin. Actually, it's a series of short stories that was compiled into a book called Tough Voyaging. It's pretty entertaining. I highly recommend it for anybody. Um, so anyway, Tough Voyaging is a sci-fi, uh, book. Um, but essentially, it starts off, um, this planet uh, starts to experience all sorts of pestilence with this coming of a comet. Um, and it turns out that the comet ends up being a um, spaceship that's uh, waging biological warfare on it um, automatically for, for centuries. It's just stuck in orbit and uh, a war that is long ended and the spaceship's on autopilot just... Uh, keeps raining biological terror on this uh, planet. Now, I don't think that's what's happening here, but 
there's been a lot of conversation about whether the comet is been re- being responsible for magic returning into the world, or the dragons are the responsibility of why magic has returned to a world. We don't know. I don't know if they're um, coincidentally linked or what the causality here is, but that being said, I don't really think they play up the comet too much in the show besides this conversation. Yeah, I don't think so either. I, I, I agree with that. All right, so that was a long, boring tangent. We're going to move on. <laughs> no question. Yeah, because it didn't provide any uh, discussion on Ryan's part. So thanks. Oh, well, I'm not, I'm not entirely sure what you want me to discuss. <laughs> I what think it, you, we talked longer about this scene than the scene actually took. Well, do you, uh, do you, what do you think the, the comet's there for? Like, if you were trying to interpret it, or it's just like, oh, there's a comet, duh. Next, I, I, I want to see maybe some... Maybe it's, uh, it's uh, about... Like, what do they call that? A MacGuffin, where it doesn't really have anything to do with anything. It just kind of seems like it does. Or well, the MacGuffin, uh, that would be that would that would work. But a MacGuffin springs action upon certain people. Mm-hmm. Now, if if somebody said, "Oh, we're gonna attack because I see this comet in the sky, and that's a good omen. That's gonna make me attack, or that's gonna give me the," that would make that would make sense. But it doesn't seem like anybody's changing their uh, plans. It just seems like everybody's just seeing into it what they want to see into it um yeah i mean i think it's kind of actually the i think a better phrase would be a red herring um it doesn't really mean anything um but i I guess the most likely explanation to me would be that it's signaling the return of dragons because that's actually something that happened i I don't know how a comet (laughs) i don't know that the stark starks winning a war a rob winning a war would be a supernatural event, I guess. Right. Whereas uh, dragons are probably closer to that realm. But still, it's bullshit. I mean, even if dragons yeah. are magic, what what does dragons have to do with a large celestial body coming into view of Planetos, whatever this world is? I don't, I don't see the connection there at all. I have no clue. Great. So that was very uh, <laughs> valuable. <laughs> Yeah, I just don't. I don't have any any clue. Yeah, I don't either. I mean, it's 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 just all guesswork. Who cares? Um, but we're gonna move on. Uh, we're now on the road to Burning Man, and Danny's playing with her new baby dragons. Um, and she's walking along with her uh, sad excuse for a Kalasar when her horse dies. Now this is a horse, uh, her silver that was given to her by Cal Drogo in the first season. In the books, the horse is alive and well and has survived all of this. Um, but it doesn't matter. I mean, it's just a fucking horse. Anyways, they're wandering alone in the desert. They're fleeing. They can't go this way. They can't go that way because they'll be pursued by other Dothraki or the lamb men would kill them. Who knows? But anyway, they're just wandering around and Danny decides to send her blood riders, these three dudes out in three different directions looking for, um, you know, anything signs of life, cities, the ocean, and has them come back to her. Not much going on here. Just uh, once again, letting us know what's going on with Danny. Yeah, I mean, what a shitty leader. I mean, they seem completely rudderless at this point. Yeah. I mean, they're stuck out in the middle of a desert with nothing, and she has no clue what to do. And she just sends these people out. I mean, uh, she's garbage leader. And the other thing that I wondered about this scene is how freaking bad do those people smell if, if it was real. Yeah, I guess. I mean, at least it's dry. I mean, imagine like people if it was like, a, I don't know, humid, probably yeah. be much worse. But you're right. Uh, the way they set this up, it seems like they've been walk- wandering for a long time. And just now they're they're making a plan of, well, we can't just wander directionless. I guess my plan of 
wandering wandering around directionless trying to find a, a town has led us astray um i better have a new plan yeah it's just ridiculous um yeah but but whatever i mean it, yeah this is what this is what's happening danny's in love with her dragons and i guess she's distracted who cares yeah. So next we go north of the wall. The uh, the the ranging party that we saw at the end of the last episode has arrived at Craster's Keep, and this guy's a real fucking creep. He bangs his bangs his kids, um, it marries his daughters, who give him more daughters, so presumably he bangs those daughters. Uh, just a real, real not a nice dude. Um, so you can kind of tell something's going on because this guy is there in the middle of it. He's got this camp, and it's just him defending it. It's kind of odd. Um, and we find out a little bit more about that later uh, in this season. Uh, Lord Commander Mormont asks about Benjen. Uh, John gets a little sassy. Uh, they obtain some information from Craster that the, uh, for instance, they noticed that the, the Night's Watch ranging party noticed there were six abandoned villages on the way uh, to Craster's Keep, Craster lets them know that they are going to join Mance Raider, who was the king beyond the wall, or has de- declared himself the king beyond the wall. We also find out he's a former member of Night's Watch. Um, and so we also meet Gilly, and um, not a whole lot. I mean, there's kind of an info dump in the scene. Yeah, um, there's quite a and, lot. It uh, also sets up the the... the that there's a, probably a supernatural element to what is going on here, because if there are wildlings or create, you know, uh, I mean, you would assume that these, for instance, the Thens, why would the Thens just go kill this guy and take all this stuff? Or there's also the White Walker element of it, which we see in a later episode. So there's, yeah, there's a lot going on here in this this scene. Ah, uh, yeah, that's what I understand. Uh, reading the books and watching the show, I would have thought the other wildlings would have taken out Craster a long time ago, just for being an informant um, uh, to the Night's Watch. But yeah. Uh, yeah, we get this uh, Pip or Gren, one of them has the lowdown of Craster before they arrive, and he gives everybody the story about Craster's daughter's wives. And I don't know, was it just me, or did it come off this story talking about Craster? Um, came off a little judgy. <laughs> what? <laughs> Awful. <laughs> but... Uh, um, but it I know you were, you were really upset when uh, what was that guy from Germany, Joseph Fritzl? You were really upset when they took him in. <laughs> I don't know that guy, but I'm sure it was you know it, you're innocent till proven guilty. But um, it is also remarked that all the other wildlings have disappeared, but he's still there, so he must be doing something right. Uh, hinting once again at the human sacrifice that we find out about much later, and, yeah. and somebody even says, well, "What does he do to the sons?" Um, so, you know, that put two and two together, that's what happens. Um, uh, we also get the same bullshit relativism speech that we got from OSHA about, uh, cause he starts calling them Southerners. Right. And John says, we're not Southern. And Brand said the same thing to Asha and, and Craster says the same thing Asha said to him and says, you're South of me. So you're a Southerner. Um, I don't know why they keep reiterating that, um, uh, and yeah, we find out that everybody's gathering uh, with Mance Raider to form an army, presumably to, there's only one direction to go, south, so that means through the wall. So Yeah, I, I think this is the first time we've heard Mance's name. I believe so, yeah. yeah. He's one of these secondary big characters like uh, Stannis that we, you know, really didn't, didn't hear about at all or much in the first season is now going to play a bigger role. But yeah, uh, 
this guy Craster is he's an informant basically just like a police informant and just like he's a narc he's a narc and just like every other uh informant we've ever heard about at least in fiction he profits from these people these cops until they get him killed and that's exactly what happens so um and he does it like and he's withholding stuff like even he's just like I could tell you but I'm a little thirsty and then Mormont brings in some wine and you know, I asked him about, well, what are they going to do now? And he goes, oh, that's a nice axe. Give him your axe. And then he tells him. So this guy's just a real piece of shit. Uh, but somehow he's a friend to the Night's Watch. And this is what really gets me. In the books, it comes out that they know, or at least uh, Gior Mormont knew that he was donating or sacrificing his sons to the White Walkers or to something or to the old gods. Um and he accepted it because this guy was a friend of the Night's Watch, whatever the fuck that means. Yeah. Um, yeah, that does come out in the book as well, or in the show. Okay. Yeah, no question about that. Um, yeah, but he's he Craster takes the the creep to a whole nother level on the show. It's like, what if you were, uh, what if you took, um, what's his nuts, the guy uh, at the Twins? Oh yeah. And then he also banged all of his daughters, and then his daughter's well, daughters, daughters. I think it's the same guy, just the guy, the um, the guy at the twins has more money. I feel like this is the white trashier, like the guy with the absolutely no money uh, in the trailer park, and this is the you know the guy that has uh, you know a little bit a little bit more money. What's this guy's name at the, the white trash the Walter Frey? White trash Walter Frey. That sounds good. And, yeah. and we're gonna refer to Craster's Keep as Craster's Creep from now on. Yeah, that's fine. Okay, cool. All right, so then we go on to Dragonstone. This is the first time we've been here, and we see this uh, kind of an old chubby maester running like crazy along the, the beachfront, um, and we're introduced to Stannis Baratheon, Davos, Melisandre, and this maester called Maester Crescent, and there's a basically a blasphemous religious ceremony in which the seven gods, statues of the seven gods are all being burned on the beach and um, a magic sword is being pulled from the breast of one of them. Um, and Stannis is crowned the Lord of Light, uh, or not the Lord of Light, whatever, the hero that was promised, something like that. Yeah. Anyway, it's is all uh, the red woman, Melisandre, and her crazy religion and... Mr. Grayson thinks that it's time to st- stop this, and Davos is like, not now, because he can read the scene, read his King Stannis, um, and he doesn't think it's a good time to intervene. Later on, they're all uh, hanging out in the map room on the table that looks like Westeros, and Maester Crescent thinks it's a good time to attempt to assassinate Melisandre with poison wine, uh, but he only succeeds in killing himself. Yeah, that was pretty stupid. <laughs> it was pretty stupid. Yeah. In the in the um in the book, he doesn't drink it himself. She propositions that. Um she says, I'll drink if you drink, and she drinks first, I believe. Mm-hmm. This he drinks first and ends up dying because <laughs> he didn't know how fast that shit would work. Uh but regardless, she drinks the poison wine and is completely unaffected. Um establishing Mel is a very powerful slash magical um, entity and player in the game. Uh, my biggest question, and I had this in the books too, where the fuck did Melisandre come from? Why did she choose Stannis? What the fuck? I don't know. I have no clue, and I don't think that any explanation is provided 
to us. But yeah, you're right. It's uh, she kind of comes out of nowhere, and I think the other red priestess that we've seen, she kind of came out of nowhere as well. Um, it's it's odd, but I guess if she, if he's or she is, thinks she's actually found the, the 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 promised one or the chosen one, then she would presumably track him down. Uh, we know from later episodes that she's several hundred years old. So I, yeah, I don't know. There's there's definitely not a. A, a coherent story behind that, or at least one that's been put on the screen yet, or in the books. Right. So it's all speculation. But my, yeah. I guess my my biggest uh, question would be whether she's acting of her own accord, like a maverick, or if she's sent by the Red Priest uh, establishment, whatever the fuck they're called. Is there one? I mean, we only know of the two separate <sighs> Red Priestesses. Do we, do we know of any other organization uh, behind them? In the book, we definitely do. Um, because oh, okay. they're sending, you know, they're sending one of their head honchos to Danny um, in the book. But once again, in the, the show, it's really not brought up. But regardless, uh, I think the safest explanation is that she is acting on her own. She's just, yeah. you know, she's just, a, you know, because there definitely is an establishment even in the show because in season six, they kind of, Tyrion works with them to do that public oh, yeah, relations the, kind of like. Right. So it's not just, you know, one or two red priests or priestesses out there. There's a whole like congregation and uh, organization of this religion. Uh, but regardless, she's here helping up Stannis for God knows what reason. I guess she truly believed that he was Azor High or yeah. this, this powerful hero. But I don't know why she would think that. Maybe she just saw it in her flames. I have no idea. I don't either. There's some. I, I like this scene. That table was is, is absolutely incredible. Yeah, that was one of the coolest things in the show. And I'm glad they brought that to brought that to the screen. Yeah, from the books, absolutely. Yeah, and uh, it's funny, Stannis. Our first meeting of Stannis, uh, you can tell he means business. The interaction between whether he, he should include the word beloved in the letter regarding the death of his brother. Uh, yeah. Yeah, uh, and then you call him Sir Jamie Kingslayer because he's a Kingslayer. <laughs> Might as well call him what he is, but he still deserves the respect to be called Sir. Uh, yeah, yeah. And there's been like some allusions to Stannis how he's a taskmaster, or he's, uh, and I think that really comes through pretty well in this scene. And so Davos wants to. I, I'm, I'm Stannis being as practical as he is. I'm kind of surprised he didn't consider either of the options presented by Davos to strengthen their forces by either joining up with Renly or by uh, joining with Rob. Um, because he's, I mean, it does see, and we find out later, Stannis doesn't have the, the, the type of army he needs. And you would think as his great general, he would, he would know. And I think he has, he's some degree to some degree skeptical of Melisandre. So I, I don't, his, uh, his, his military thinking, despite it's supposed to be, the the best out there. I don't know that he is that tactical based on some of the decisions he makes later. I think he's show. a very uh he's a great military mind, but before mm -hmm. that he thinks about the rules. So it starts with the rules and what the rules dictate, and then he uses his military mind to achieve those things. He doesn't think militaristically to begin with. That's not the foundation of who Stannis is. It's just gotcha. how he goes about getting things. And I think uh Melisandre fits into this because she's there telling him what he wants to hear that he is, you know, uh, prophesized to win and prophesized to be this great uh, ruler. Uh, but, you know, it, 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 this just illustrates how much of a tragedy this whole um, show is. You're right. If 
he would have just talked to Renly and they would have found some agreement, maybe split the kingdom in half. Maybe Stannis has the northern part and Renly has the southern part. Who knows? Or maybe, uh, I don't know, if just did some more diplomacy. The Lannisters mm-hmm. wouldn't be on the throne even now in season six. Um, it's just it's just sad. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, moving on from there, we go to Rob's camp. And Rob is keeping Jamie with him, explains that he is afraid to send him to one of his Bannerman's castles because he knows the Lannisters will spend all the money that they have to get Jamie back. Um, there's some taunting back and forth between them. Rob's direwolf, Greywind, shows up and is freaking huge. And uh, they kind of discuss the news from, that he's gotten from Stannis that uh, Jamie, that T- Joffrey is a bastard between Jamie and Cersei. And it was odd because Rob mentioned the, uh, the brand being pushed out the window. And I don't think that he's supposed to know that at this point. I'm not sure that anybody else would have had that information or been able to provide him. Because I think the only people who know are Jamie. Cersei, Ned, who's dead, and I think that's about it. Well, I think this goes back to something we missed in the last scene. So uh, when uh, Stannis was filling out all those letters or dictating those letters, it was recounting what Ned had told him and exposing Jamie and Cersei's incest and how Joffrey is a product of that incest. And then he was sending it out to everybody in the Seven Kingdoms. Um, yeah. And Rob got that letter. He tells Jamie he got this letter. So he puts it together that he was banging his sister and that's probably why. So that's, that's the reason why like Rob didn't know. He just guessed at it based on the situation with Jamie and Cersei. Yeah, I guess seems like a bridge too far, but uh, minor detail, minor detail. Regardless, I didn't, uh, this was to me uh, like a pretty wasteful scene. It was table setting. Not much happens here. Um, but yet another scene where we have the direwolves, which once again they're going to be huge later on in the story. <laughs> yeah, well they are huge in that that scene. Grey yeah. one is giant. He is giant. All right, so then yeah. we go down to King's Landing and another time waste of a scene with Tyrion and Shay, um, just so we can get the words "come and fuck" in there, talking about how the city smells and how she loves it. Um, Tyrion tells Shay she has to be careful because they can trust no one here. Um, and then they Spider-Man kiss upside down. Um, <laughs> and Tyrion, it seems like he's falling in love. That's about it. Uh, that's all I got from this scene. But later, we go to Cersei, and she's seeking Littlefinger's help uh, locating Arya. So I guess Tyrion's prodding worked and shaming worked. She's like, oh, well, I guess Arya is important. I need to do something about this. Uh, they go back and forth, and after trying to bully Littlefinger by bringing up, um, you know, she casually mentions that there was a little boy in the the fingers who fell in love with the girl but it was unrequited little finger throws right back in her um you know lots of things can happen when you know children get together especially brothers and sisters and prominent households so basically he throws right back the the knowledge that he he knows about Cersei's incest and that knowledge is power um Cersei no likey and has little finger seized and then released um, just to demonstrate how and refute his claim that knowledge is power. She says power is power. And all this happens all the while while a little bird, a small child, watches from the shadows, I guess observing four varies. Yeah, it's, uh, this is. Uh, I don't know why Littlefinger's poking the bear. I don't. Uh, he, he would think I he think would know he got, better. I think because he got 
emotionally riled up by Cersei mentioning um, Cat. Yeah. I feel like he's emotional about Cat. He's still in love with her. So that's what got him to act like an idiot. But you're right. He should have. He shouldn't have uh, poked her. Yeah. It was interesting seeing that kid cleaning the floor now that we know a little bit more about the little birds. I mean, that, that's a cool detail that I, I know I certainly didn't notice it the first time I watched the show. Um, but presumably that is a that was a, a little a little bird. And so now Varys knows about this conversation. Right. And that's nice. Yeah, it's, it's nice that they're they're leaving that little bit of a detail in there. Um, mm-hmm. So it's all interconnected. Yeah, absolutely. And did you notice, I thought that Tyrion's room seemed awful small for the King of the Hands room. I really wasn't paying attention, but... All right. I just, so I just noticed how bad the, the green screen was when Shay was on the balcony. Yeah. Um, you know, and that just shows how much the budget has increased, I guess, in these later seasons. Yeah. And she's not she... a good actress at all. Like, no. I think she got better as the show went on, but she's not good. No, and she gets apparently real horny with the smell of trash, which is kind of gross. Um, so uh, then we go to uh, Rob in his camp, and he's meeting with Alton Lannister, which I think is a made-up Lannister. I don't think that that was in the book. Yeah, I think so. Uh, yeah, Rob's offering the terms of peace, which is the return of their dead people, the return of his sisters, and, of course, the North is free. The Lannister does not think it will go will fly, and, of course, later we know it doesn't. Um, uh, so not much to that scene. Yeah. I, um, I, I wrote here after this, uh, Theon, uh, proposes enlisting the yes. Ironborn, uh, to be part of the war, war effort. And I think this is a great idea, but you shouldn't send Theon personally. Uh, and it wouldn't work out. Plus, because when Theon actually goes to propose this, his yeah. dad, Balon's a, just a fucking idiot rube. Um, and he, Dejects it, saying, "You know, he won't take any take a kingdom uh, that's given to him. He takes it by the paying the iron price, which is forcibly uh, taking it. I guess by sacking and killing and just being a yeah. pieces of trash. Um, yeah, but there's not much to this. But it, but Rob says he knew knows that the terms will get rejected. So I don't know why he's even bothering to set up these terms." Yeah, what's the point? I, I don't know. I don't know. Um, so after uh, Rob and Theon speak, Cat uh, discourages Rob from enlisting the help of the Greyjoys uh, because the Greyjoys were re- rebels prior, and actually Ned had to help put down a Balon's um, Balon's uh, revolution, which I don't think is discussed much in the show. I think there's a little bit more about it in the book, if I remember correctly. Yeah. Um, but more or less, Balon Greyjoy is not to be trusted. Kind of surprised that he's still in charge up there, um, which we find out later, not for very long. Uh, so they also discuss how the women are not worth the price of Jamie. Rob couldn't trade Jamie Lannister for two girls. His bannermen would string him up, I think is what he says. So as an alternative strategy, he wants Cat to go to um, – where does he want Cat to go to? Uh, to meet with Renly. Yes, to meet with Renly to discuss teaming up together, which is uh, – you know that that does sound like a good plan. Uh, at the same time, he is going to send um, I think Beard Burns to go be with the the two boys that are still the two Stark boys that are still at Winterfell, uh, and, uh, unattended except for a <laughs> a giant uh, moron and, and, uh, and yeah uh, and a North, prisoner North, North Rat. Yep. 
I, yeah. I will say that in a change from the books, Catelyn says at one point, uh, you know, she realizes she's been a terrible mother and hasn't seen Bran or Rick in a long time. And then Rob goes, no, you can't go home. Um, but in, in the books, I think she's totally uh, volunteers for this mission to, to go uh, see Renly. Um, mm-hmm. She does seem torn up about not seeing her boys, but I don't recall her ever uh, making any action to go back home um, to see her kids. No, and then once I mean, once he proposed it, I mean, she seemed to be on board with the plan right away. <coughs> yeah, so there yes. wasn't a lot of fighting going on, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, uh, this is yet another moment where she talks about meeting up with Renly, and if they join forces. Uh, Renly attacking from the south with the Tyrells uh, and the Starks from the north. They would have had this one, but no. Doesn't work out. Because he's yes, people are absolutely. And it's just a tragedy. It's just a it's a stark tragedy. Alright, so uh, then we go back down to King's Landing. And Joffrey must have been watching HDTV because he's all about uh, doing home renos. And the Iron Throne room is home getting... Home renos? Is that a phrase? Home renos? I've never heard the, the term home reno. <laughs> reno? Isn't that I've never I've never heard someone shorten renovation to reno. Well, it's way too many syllables. What are you gonna say renovation every time? Uh, as a person who likes to pronounce the entire word or like the entire phrase, yes I would. Okay, fine. Uh so he's watching the Property Brothers and um he decides to make over the throne room. Uh and Cersei meets him and tries to like discuss um the capture of Arya Stark and they bicker for a while. Um, but you get the, the feeling that Cersei is realizing that she has no control over Joffrey and Joffrey starts talking about, uh, his father's other bastards and blames Tywin for the loss in the battlefield. Yeah. The loss of Jamie. Yeah. Just going off like an idiot, but is what Cersei has nothing to say. But when he talks about the bastards and how, his dad got tired of sleeping with her. Um, Cersei backhands him across the face, and everybody working in the hall stops and looks, and then goes about back, abruptly back to their business, which I thought was genuinely funny and well done. Um, yeah. But yeah, after that, Joffrey threatens to kill his mother if she ever does it again. <laughs> so this just illustrates that Cersei has lost all control of Joffrey. Joffrey is now a uh, an agent of chaos. Um, yeah, you know, and that's not good for anybody, really. So besides, maybe I guess no, no, finger and he thinks chaos is a ladder, but he he's a maniac. I mean, just like the the level of dis, distaste for his mother. I mean, uh, yeah, I, I, he's <laughs> it, it just gets worse. It just yeah. gets worse as the show goes on. Absolutely, and that, and that's the thing is, I forgot how much I hated Joffrey. Like it's been so long, and he was such a better bad guy than I think uh, Roose Bolton. Because Ruth Bolton was just cartoonishly evil. Uh, Ramsey. Okay, yeah, Ramsey. Sorry, uh, yeah. but but you know what I mean. I thought Jeffrey was a bad Jeffrey Joffrey was a better bad guy just because he was like a a maniac, but not like I don't know a sadistic cartoonish maniac. Right. He's just a piece of shit. More believable. I don't know somehow. Yeah, I agree with you. I agree with you. And th- that kid just has a face that you want to punch the shit out of too. Yeah. It's like Draco Malfoy. I wonder what this guy goes on to do or like, even if he turns out to be like a, you know, a system manager at a Best Buy, it's going to be like, fuck you, my Lord. Or like <laughs> customers are going to be punching the shit out of him. 
I agree. I don't know what this kid's going to do with his life. I don't know. Uh, so then we go to Littlefinger's whorehouse, and uh, now Roz is giving out the uh, sex position lessons. Yeah, she's been promoted to middle management, I guess. Yes. It was almost uh, verbatim what Littlefinger told her, other than play with the ass. Um, so Littlefinger, uh, we're told that Littlefinger prefers to be called by Lord Baelish. Um, so while, while uh, there's some these uh, Rube, I guess the new recruit to the whorehouse, is being escorted around and told what to do. Uh, Jano Slint rolls up with some armored men, and apparently they're killing all of Robert's bastards, including this baby uh, that we met in a few episodes ago when uh, John or when Ned was investigating the bastards. Pretty brutal. I mean, I, that scene, I, I, I didn't need to hear the yeah, knife entering I the agree. baby. This is where yeah. I was getting to. Yeah, I, that, that just—I mean, it wasn't necessary. I nope. mean, I, no, I didn't think they could have communicated what happened. A lot, not hearing a fucking knife in her baby. Um, so yeah. then we just see a bunch of bastards being slaughtered, and then we also find out uh, that Gendry is on the hit list as well. Yeah, this is another one of those things where George, there's a lot of rape, there's a lot of baby killing, there's a lot of horrible things that happen in the books, but George R. R. Martin lets the audience aware of that by recounting of people's telling it. He doesn't have it happen on screen. I mean, there's some horrible shit that happens on screen, like, uh, you know, uh, the Viper's head getting exploded uh, yeah. and people getting chopped in half and stuff. But this really despicable stuff, like a uh, a baby getting murdered or a protagonist getting raped, these things don't happen or need to happen on screen. And it's just one of these weird choices that the showrunners made. Um, you know, it's just, it, it's it's kind of like the old adage uh, in TV and film, show it, don't say it, is not the best in all situations, I'll say. Yeah. Um, we definitely didn't need to see, they could have cut to black and we would have got the, uh, or cut to the next scene after the knife came out. You know what I mean? Yeah, it's just like, give me that baby. He grabs the baby, then they're that, drowning other that people. That was it, yeah. You didn't yeah. need anything else. Um, eh, it's just distasteful. And the it, it, only thing it succeeded in is making me feel sick at the end of the episode. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, man, now that we went through it again in retrospect, <laughs> this one was kind of a stinker. There you go. So, yeah. all right. So you're changing. Yeah, you can tell by how short the show was, uh, our, our show was. Yeah. Uh, it wasn't even a lot, a lot of things to get excited about or to really discuss. Yeah, this is a stinker of a season, yeah. and uh, it'll get better in season three, but that's a you know, that's a, a ways off. Uh, but once again, guys, I was a little under the weather. Um, you know, uh, Brian overexerted himself this weekend, and it's not a very good episode. All these things conspired to make it a short episode, and we'll come back um, stronger than ever next week. But before we go, uh, I'm going to give this a rating. Uh, I'm going to say two uh, out of five stars. Um, yeah, I think you're right. Uh, put that in a sandwich. Yeah, I don't know. Uh, like a 7-Eleven hot dog? But how about a hot dog sandwich? Hot dog sandwich? Yeah, you know where you cut the hot dog in half and put it on bread. Oh, it's yeah, because good. you don't have buns. Yeah, kind of stinks. Yeah, yeah, it's not very good. And the white bread always sticks to it. Yeah, that's, yeah. that seems appropriate. All right, um, but yeah, we will be back next week. Oh, and I might have a lead on a girl who watches the show who might be on the podcast. She actually has a Drew Carey's tattoo. 
<laughs> Dracaris, yeah. Okay, cool. So uh, that'll be fun. Hopefully, I won't scare her away, and she'll be on the podcast. Yeah. Um, we'll try to get some guests on here, and I think the guests kind of liven things up too, even when we have the stinker episodes. Not Jermaine, though. Not Jermaine. He'll never be invited back again, ever. Okay. All right, guys. Thanks for joining us, and uh, we'll see you next Tuesday. Bye. Yeah.